Hello, and welcome to another virtual event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is mixing things up a bit with our virtual events because our special guest is editor Jennifer McCord. Jennifer has a rich background in books, worked in publishing for a number of years, and she brings some remarkable insights into the business of books and how readers connect with what they like to read. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jennifer McCord. Well, John, thank you so much for um, having this conversation with me. I so appreciate it. We have a love of reading, a love of books that yeah. has uh, carried us over the years. And the other day we spent some time talking. We realized we had our whole list of books that we had to go get because we <laughs> had recommendations from each other. Have you read this? No. Have you read I that? No. So <laughs> It's amazing because I know there are people that find it difficult to find things to read. And I'm like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is finding time to read everything. Right. Yes. And I was so grateful because um, my unread stack was diminishing. And I thought, well, I have to get some more in here because I like a selection to read. Mm -hmm. So it was really great to be able to talk with you and think, oh, have I tried this author? Have I tried that author? So that well, I'm looking great. forward to getting some um, tips from you about what's new and what's upcoming, but let's start by having you tell us, I always ask authors, and so I'll ask you this too, tell us a little bit about yourself, like where did you grow up, kind of your background. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that read. Oh, good. And my mother was always reading and staying up late at night and reading a book and being groggy in the morning was okay. <laughs> and she did that too. And uh, so I was lucky to have that kind of experience around me all the time as a kid. And even in, as we both got older in life, we could always sit and discuss books no matter what, which was wonderful for me. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up in Minnesota, uh, not far from the University of Minnesota campus. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to be in an early childhood education program, which they were starting for kids to teach them read and reading and math and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I can remember that I read enough that I could go up and climb this little ladder, which seemed a big ladder and pick a book to read. Hmm. And I was about three and a half years old. And that started my love of reading. Wow. And I was so grateful. And I didn't realize for many years that reading is a skill. Mm -hmm. yeah, skill level, true. like math is a skill level. And so I just learned that skill really early. And of course, I was rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. So I've always read. Now, did you always know that you wanted to do something with books when you were growing up as a career? Oh, I was a, a musician and oh. played uh, the flute. So I did that part of the creative world of playing the flute. I was a history major in the University of Washington. I We moved and I ended up at, in Seattle and graduated from the University of Washington. And I loved the fact that history or the history department here not only taught history, but they taught the culture at the same time. Oh. So you read a book from the era that you were studying. Hmm. So that was really great for me uh, because not only did I read the book about history, but I also read a novel during that time, time, like period. the 1800s, 1900s, whatever. That's so great. that was good. Um, I was in my, I was in my 30s when I started, um, got a job as a store manager in an independent bookstore in Denver. Okay. Was it Tattered Cover or no? No, it was uh, at the ABC bookstore. Oh. Uh, it was run by a woman and her family. And 
I came in and I can remember the day I started and I had read most of the store. Mm-hmm. I'd read a lot of the store, book, the books in the store, but I also got understood it. I just understood the idea of looking at what you sell, trying to figure out, should you buy it again? Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to keep track of all the inventory. And I also am very lucky that I have somewhat of a photographic memory of covers so I could remember the covers. Oh. And we also had to write down, this is before computerized <laughs> inventory, we had to write down what we sold. So what did I learn? Right away, I learned author, publisher, mm-hmm. title. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. So that stood me so well for years in the industry because I could remember, oh, yes, that. Oh, I remember that. Mm-hmm. So I worked there and I, then I went to work for Bloomsbury Bookstore, which was another independent bookstore and they did the Bloomsbury Review. And I lo- realized oh. then quickly, and I also realized this as a musician, that certain places that you play, there's the audience mm-hmm. that likes what you play, just like there's the audience for the books that buy in certain bookstores. So the best, mm-hmm. very esoteric bookstores have a completely different audience than the more popular bookstores Mm -hmm. that carry popular fiction. And I realized that quickly, that I was working working in a bookstore one mile away from another bookstore, completely different audience. The people Mm -hmm. I saw there as potential readers that I'd sell books to was completely different than the store that was literally a mile away. So that taught me, what did that teach me? It taught me what, you know, that if you want to, have a lot sell books you have to figure out what your audience is yes what is going to be the audience for this mm-hmm. and then i went to work for walden books national chain and i learned then by how that industry worked and how that company worked what we sold in different parts of the country which was always fascinating to me there really there are regional differences. People don't think about that because they think of the New York Times bestseller list as being universal. But right. there are, yeah, right. So as John, as you know, I worked in the romance book industry and helped uh, work with Walden Books on that uh, category. And we also had a, a three or four readers that I worked with. It was a romance expert committee. And we were always talking about what was selling in our area. And I was in the Pacific Northwest. Another reader uh, who worked in the bookstore was in the Washington, D.C. area. And the other person was in the Midwest. Hmm. And we were always looking at what was working and what do we think and what do we think our readers would want. Hmm. And that was interesting to me is to realize the various kinds of readers that we had across the countries that came into Walden bookstores. Did you ever, were you ever surprised by a book that sold really well in an area that you would have thought, no, it's not going to sell there? Yes, uh, Jude Devereaux's book that was a time travel, I believe. Oh, the classic one, Night in Shining Armor? Yes, that was a surprise to me. Hmm. And still, there's people, I have two very good friends that like, that's their go-to read, you know, talk about romance. Right, and that was interesting to me that that works in such vast, places because in the Midwest where this one, uh, this woman who ran the bookstore for Walden Books then, that would have been kind of an iffy situation possibly. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the South, Midwest South. So that be a bit more conservative, yeah. Yes, that was interesting to me. I do remember uh, we, I had, um, I was thinking about this the other day, 
we I had a group of, I mean, customers would come in and buy books from me. Mm-hmm. And one woman, she was in her 90s and she would come in three times a week. And if she didn't show up, we we're always worried about her. Where is she? Is she okay? Mm-hmm. But she came in and I remember her reading the first Nora Roberts that came out. She walked in the door. She brought the book to me and said, this is a keeper. Watch her. Was that one of her category romances? Yeah, it was Irish oh. Thoroughbred. Oh, wow. That was her first book. Yeah. 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 And I thought, okay, if this woman gets it, we got a winner here. Yeah, that's interesting. You were also involved in some rather... Um, successful marketing um, efforts when you were at Walden Books. I remember the little romance newsletter. Well, it wasn't little, but. Yeah, it was, we did love notes. The other thing we did is we gave out um, awards at Romance Writers of America annual convention for books that sold the best selling books in certain categories, which was interesting to see too, um, how that worked. And tr- really trying to reward um, the publisher and the writer and the editor that this book had done well for us the caveat was that was did well for us for a certain time frame yeah um people sometimes some people i guess don't always realize that there are cycles to publishing in terms of items think genres that are popular subgenres themes and they come and go and you'd be surprised how they return again right yeah that was always interesting to me too what was always also interesting to me was um the romance reader read across all kinds of categories generally yes i think yeah they read that. mystery they read science fiction they read fantasy they read fiction they read nonfiction. they read cookbooks they read self-help they did they did all kinds of reading and what i always was um really appreciated from the romance reader was if they came to the store they bought usually a couple of books and they bought something else they might have bought a magazine they might have bought another book in fiction or whatever they had a a voracious ability to read and I was always so impressed with that um and I'm not sure that some bookstores got that uh for a long time there was um kind of a snobbish attitude in bookstores and in public libraries which is where I started out about the romance genre it was like it was a dirty little secret that you didn't talk about with right so I think that was it the other part what has struck me and continues to um, amaze me is how fiction, a good fiction story that takes a subject or has a character that's unusual or has some wisdom underlying a story mm-hmm. or some insight, that that changes people's lives. Hmm. In the sense that I can still remember uh, a little category book where the heroine was an electrician, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this woman came in and she said to me, I'm so glad I read this book. My daughter wants to be an electrician. I just didn't believe she would be happy or she would have any life if she was a female electrician. When I read this book, I realized she could do that. And I said, I said, go ahead, go to trade school. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how amazing. That is just one story that affected someone's life. That's a really um, insightful look at the genre, I think you're right, because another misperception about, especially about category or series romance, was that they were all the same, that there was no content right. to them, they were just silly little yeah, silly stories, little. and 
they right. many of them addressed really serious issues like breast cancer. I'm trying to think of the author who lives in the Northeast who wrote that classic book about a heroine who dealt with breast cancer. And I'm sure it will come to me three hours later. Yeah, me, too, me too. I also remember um, a book that addressed spousal abuse. Yeah. And I can remember, um, I can remember a couple of women. I was, our romance section was kind of in the back of the store in a corner so we could put all the books up. And I can still remember these women standing there talking and they started to cry. And it was over that book and they bought a bunch more because they were passing it out because they felt validated mm -hmm. about something. I thought that was just amazing to me. Um, and then I just even recently this week, I heard a story of uh, someone watching something on uh, mystery on TV and realizing that that person had that um, personality situation in their life, that disability in their life, and they did not know that. Hmm. until that time and that gave them a sense of relief mm -hmm. it was a learning disability and I thought amazing just amazing that that kind of fiction and story can have such an effect in people's lives yeah that's I mean and we're talking we're going back decades and um, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a recent um, kind of enthusiasm for books by writers like Colleen Hoover that really deal right. with intense emotionally angsty subjects and readers I knew readers I guess were both old readers are kind of surprised about this but it's been there all along oh it's always been there I always thought that historical books that dealt with difficult issues mm -hmm. uh, worked because they were distant from the today's world and people could then kind of see it for what it was mm. in a different way and and feel safer about reading about it so that was interesting to me too of what's going on. I always think too that some of the heroines that we read about um, read mm -hmm. in the books. They were readers, mm -hmm. even historical. They were readers. They learned to read and write. And that was always interesting to me too is that that was sort of a given that, hey, learn to read and write, learn that skill. And it's okay to learn that, mm -hmm. which is different. So you were at Walden Books and yes. you were in the romance section. Right. How did you, um, what was the transition into the world of publishing? What the transition in the world of publishing is um, Walden Books went through some layoffs and changes and I was part of that. And then I came back as a consultant to them. And then I was started to be hired by publishers because I knew the romance industry mm -hmm. the genre and I had read so many books. So I knew, um, you know, authors and titles and stories etc and that kind of thing uh also i was out in the northwest and i was also president of a writers uh, conference called the pacific northwest writers association uh, conference and mm -hmm. so i had a lot of experience of uh being around writers and editors and agents etc and that kind of thing um and my goal as also because of being a bookseller is to find and can and um move forward new writers. We all need new writers in this industry to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important um, to find new writers or to encourage new writers and to have uh, a place and information about how to write and how to publish. I mean, we have the internet now, but mm -hmm. you know, I started working in the industry in the 80s and 90s and the internet wasn't here. 
it's really hard for some people now to imagine that world. But yeah, publishing was totally different. You had to like type things out and mail it to agents and publishers. And right. the process was very different. And learn and learn who was accepting material. And you went to writers conferences or, you know, uh, writers groups to find information out. I think the other part is Seattle at that time. We had Microsoft and then Amazon came to town and we got into the ebook business. Mm. The University of Washington had uh, one of the professors there is the one who trained a lot of people of how to make an ebook. And I remember going to listen to him speak because I was curious about the history of publishing and how did that work and how did that fit in and were we supposed to be afraid of ebooks or not? Mm -hmm. And his comment was, you know, forms change reading doesn't. Wow, that's that's right, yeah. We incorporate forms. And I was fortunate enough when I worked with Walden Books is that I also worked in the audio business. Mm -hmm. Walden Books just tried to do romance, you know, audio romance books, mm -hmm. um, which didn't quite work out like expected. They were hard to sell at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had that experience too. So I saw how that worked. It finally, you know, audiobooks are a big part of the industry now, but it's taken time. Mm -hmm. Just like ebooks in 2000 took time to finally grab, you know, figure out how to do that. What was the device to read it on? Yeah, to make something that was more universal rather than right. specific to one publisher. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, I think in my life, I, I started my own company, Jennifer McCord and Associates, and then I've been working with various people. I've done some self-publishing, quite a bit of self-publishing, working with authors. But then I also, um, through just the network in the industry, uh, press here in Seattle needed some help with distribution and how to get their books out in a better um I guess to have find you know find distribution and publishing in a different way. So they were mostly ebooks. So I ended up going to work for them, and that was Coffee Camel Press, and that was bought by Epicenter Press a couple of years ago. So I've been working with that for over ten years, which is where I became associate publisher and editor. Wow, ten years. Um... And they do a variety of fiction, nonfiction. What scope do they have? Well, so Epicenter was formed in Alaska. It was an Alaska press. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, John, I've got my, the book that I got my first signed copy was a book set in Alaska called Barney Hits the Trail oh. about an Alaska kid. And I realized it was so funny when I found it this morning, I realized, oh, I'm back working. I'm working for an Alaska press. Who would have guessed? <laughs> um, so we have the Alaska side of it, which is fiction and nonfiction. And then we have Coffee Camel, and we also have an erotic press called Fanny. Um, and Coffee Town is some nonfiction, some literary fiction, and more, I would say, um, some mystery, more thriller mysteries in Coffee Town. Camel is more the genre. It's cozy mystery yeah. romance, some science fiction. And we go in and out of what we publish with uh, genre fiction, depending on if we know how it's going. So we were publishing quite a bit of fantasy, but we have we take very careful with how much fantasy we take. Hmm. Uh, we do mostly mystery and and some romance. We publish Carla Carla Kelly in in romance. 
Yeah, and yeah. for those listening in, Carla Kelly was kind of like an icon in the genre. She wrote traditional regencies in the 80s and 90s, and now it's right for you. And westerns, and westerns. westerns. She's always had a western um, part of her writing that she's written in westerns. So then we got into cozy mysteries and general mysteries and what I call international mysteries. Um, is that Meaning. the traditional mystery format, but just in a foreign setting? Yep. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is, as someone who's um, looking at submissions all the time, is how much we get across, we get submissions from around the world now. Well, Again, because of the internet. Yeah. How does the process work for you in terms of submissions? Do people just send, do you have stricture um, guidelines, strictures? Um... Yes, and they're on the website, the camelpress.com, coffeetownpress.com. They're on the website. I can tell you we want um, 50 pages or three chapters, a query letter, a bio with some promotional ideas. And we want a synopsis. And the synopsis that we like is three to five pages because I want to see the story structure of what the writer believes is the story structure of the protagonist. Hmm. And um, there's, I was just thinking about this last night. There's synopsis that are used for back cover copy. Mm -hmm. short. And then there's, I'm looking at how the writer thinks about the story, the beginning, middle, and end, and what is going to happen. And what's interesting to me is I'm trying, I read, uh, I'll read 50 pages and then so I'll often ask for a full manuscript, but I'm trying to figure out, do I get from what the first 50 pages are in the story to what the, the writer believes is the full story? Do I understand that? Do I understand the, do I have an idea of the characters, the setting, the conflict, and if it's a murder mystery that a murder is going to happen? Now, that doesn't mean that things can't change once you acquire a book and they're in the process of writing, because I know sometimes writers think, oh, this isn't working. I have to turn this around. But you want to be, I guess, what I'm understanding, if I'm hearing you correctly, is when they initially submit, you want to be able to see that they can see the end of the story, you want the whole story. Right. But not only that, I want to understand if am I understanding what their intent is. Okay what their creative intent is for the story, which is important for me, if you're, at least for me as an editor, is I wanna understand this, their creative process too. How do they think about their story so that I can give the kind of feedback that could help them move their story forward, hmm. which is important for me to understand how they think about it. Um, and sometimes I find that what's in the synopsis is not in the book. Really? Yeah, so for instance, some people leave out where the setting is. That's but they put it in the synopsis. Hmm. Well, is, that's why that's why there's editors, I guess. They right. Have. And so it's kind of like, okay, oh, that's interesting. Um, did you mean to put that in the book? And I also know that um there's, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I did have it in version two. Wow. <laughs> you hmm. know, in the draft, the first draft or whatever. So part of it is I'm trying to understand what they're doing because I think um, publishing is about building partnerships. Mm -hmm. It's partnership with the publisher and the author and, and, if, and the agent too, um, to bring a book to fruition and into production and to have it kind of launch into the world. And um, 
So I want to understand what that partnership means to an author. How does that work for them? And what do they expect? Hmm. And what's yes. possible? Yeah, it is a partnership between the writer and the editor. Um, when you're receiving submissions, I don't know if you can quantify this or if you want to talk about it, but what makes you decide this is something as an editor I want to see more of and versus something that just like, well, this is not working for me? Um, I think it's the first five pages. Okay. You know, is does it grab me? There's something that grabs me about this story is in it's what is the world that the author has created on those pages? Hmm. The world that I'm entering into with them, where the character resides, mm -hmm. where the major, you know, the protagonist re resides and the antagonist resides. Do I get that world? And then how is that world going to change when murder happens? That's what upsets that world? And um, is the character likable? You know, is the protagonist mm -hmm. relatable, likable, um, is important. Have you ever read a book where you have unlikable protagonists, but the writing is so good you don't care? You just there always is that. There always is that okay. possibility, you know, that you don't like the protagonist as much, but by the end or at some point in time, you begin to respect them. Okay. You know, there's that part of it. Um, so I guess that's part of uh, it's, you know, John, it's such an intuitive type of thing for me um, mm -hmm. for years of reading, mm -hmm. you know, of I hope that um, what I read and if I like a character or whatever, it's all those years of reading that I kind of bring to bear with me as mm -hmm. I look at this. Is this, you know, is this something? that would be interesting. The other part is there's some writers that are have such a strong voice. They just capture you right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you just can't, you, you're just driven to keep reading and you want it and you want to keep going and going and going and, and figure it out. So it's also a writer's voice. Yeah, that's something you can't really teach, I don't think. I don't think you can. I, and I always think of it as um, when I was, working with the romance industry and talking to readers is is people would describe it as they fell into the story yeah how can you how do I fall into this story and if I fall into a story really easily you know that that just is is precious and you know John when you've read a really good book it's re, you're you're still in the story for a couple of days afterwards mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you go yeah. oh I can't leave this. I just can't leave this. <laughs> well, you're you don't want to because you're afraid you're not going to find something as good. Exactly, I completely understand. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you that book becomes what you want to read. You want to. It's your world. You resent taking time away from it to do exactly. other things. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. leave the world. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to leave the world. And I so I think part of it is um, it's part of it is how they how a writer has set up the story. So people can fall into it and relate to it and figure out and want to continue to read of what's going to happen, regardless of what it is, you know, fiction, yeah. even nonfiction, nonfiction yeah. the same and mystery, romance, whatever. Do you, where have they created that world? 
And what's interesting to me is working um, in fantasy is I that really became apparent is how fantasy writers create a world. They have so much work to do to create that world mm-hmm. that's believable for the reader. You have very wide ranging tastes as a reader, at least that's my perception of you. Um, but as an editor, can you ever, if you got a submission and it wasn't your particular taste as a reader, but you still recognize that the book is strong for what it is, you can still work with that, can't you? Right. And the wonderful thing is that we have uh, some, um, what I call an editorial group Uh work and the publisher reads a lot as well. So um, it's a discussion. It's a submission discussion. And then the question gets to be is, can we do justice to the book to pu- when we publish it? Can we give it the best that we can do? And do we even, you know, we're known for mystery, quite a bit of mystery, some romance and Alaska and some nonfiction. Is it out of our wheelhouse? You know, if it's so unusual, mm-hmm. out of something that we publish, I'm always concerned that, um, will we get the kind of recognition the book deserves is what I mean. Can we do the book justice? That's really um, nice that you're thinking about the author from that perspective. Always thinking about the author from that perspective because um, I just feel as a creative person and someone who uh, was a musician and stuff too, you know, you want to have people understand what you write and get the best chance that you can to have that experience. And so I I always think of that. And, And if there's a book that I just, don't I really love it but I don't think we're the press for it I will try to recommend try this press try that press try something else find an agent for this book it's such a strong book that you know for you it might be better for you I think that can be sometimes for aspiring writers they don't always um, appreciate that or understand it but just because you submit your work to one publisher and they're not accepting, that doesn't mean you haven't written something that's good. It just means the match is not good between you and that that's publishing like, house. Yeah, that's exactly right. I remember um, well, talking with publishers years ago. Uh, it's some, uh, you know, they're trying to build an author. And I'm, I was saying it's kind of like trying to find the right venue mm. for this, right, you know, book. And I think of... Um, I guess part of it is I used to be a solo musician at times when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I would stand in front of an audience and play. And I would hope that they would get what I was playing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I felt that that where I was playing was not the right place for this piece that I was playing. And that got brought home when I went to visit my family in Midwest, the Midwest of Minnesota. And I practiced and practiced a really... I think it was probably a Bach piece and I played it for my relatives and they were like, mm-hmm. you could tell they were losing interest. And then I played a really simpler song that was, I think it was a polka and some other song and everybody loved that. And they started cheering and clapping and get, Oh, Jen, you're doing such a great job. And I realized, okay, what did I learn there? I learned, well, that piece for that group, probably not so much, even though I believed in it was great. But this other piece that was fairly simple that seemed to me like, oh, geez, that's simple. Hmm. They loved. So again, I learned, you know, audience matters, venue matters, whatever matters for the audience, for a reader too, readers. 
Does that um, make sense, John? It does. It's um, you're uh, really offering a lot of um, your years of wisdom, and the next, which leads into the next question. Sure. For those aspiring writers that may be listening and want advice, what advice would you give to them to kind of see them become more successful? What are some of the common mistakes that you think new writers make that could be turned around? Well, John, I wrote this out and I've been teaching on this because I'm also a guest lecturer at various writers oh. programs and some at the University of Washington. So one of the things I think it's really important is to read. Yeah. It's to read. Um, and re if you're going to write in a mystery genre or romance genre or even nonfiction genre of memoir or even a nonfiction self-help, read. Mm -hmm. Understand how that works. Understand the craft that you're of the work that you're writing into. Understand the genre that you're writing. Mm -hmm. I think it's important. So uh, I'd sometimes get a submission for a murder mystery and it says it, the murder is not solved at the end of the book. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm glad that you wrote that. But for us, the conventions of the genre, readers expect to have the murder solved at the end of the book and mm -hmm. that justice is done somehow so that's important to understand that so one of the things is is don't is it's okay to take a, a writing a, a writing class mm -hmm. if there's community college or um some universities offer certificate programs you can do so much online these days mm -hmm. and if i was going to suggest online make sure you read through the credentials of the person or the place that you're going to because there's a lot of people that offer writing classes but they really don't have the credentials that I think some universities or community colleges are and uh, have or writers organizations I think it's really important to take a look at that um I think some of it is to keep a journal of your writing ideas hmm. you know um and if you if you're not going to write that book at that time fine but just keep it there you never know when you might want to start pick up that book and, and that story and write um one of the things i think is important is to recognize the time of day when you're going to sit down and write mm -hmm. and try to put that in a daily schedule or a weekly schedule or however you're doing that and i recognized this for me when i was writing a column for walden books and doing other writing projects uh, is when did I write? And I wrote at three o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. And I realized, well, why did that happen? Well, because I used to come home and I would practice my flute. Mm -hmm. I practiced or I went to take private lessons and I would, and so what would I do? I practice for a while, do homework, eat dinner or something. And then if we had to play that night at some performance or something, I would then play. So I had those two time frames set up and that, that was repetition. And also it was from going to college, you know, go to college, come home, mm -hmm. study, do your homework, do your homework. That whole cycle was so ingrained in me that it immediately came up mm -hmm. afterwards. And a mystery writer who lived here, Mary Dayheim, was a good friend of mine. And when I was talking to her about writing and how to do stuff, one thing she told me says, sit yourself in the chair, Jen, and write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is a woman who's written a ton of books. I'm mm -hmm. taking her advice. So that was really important to me. The other part was to be able to flex a little bit. So I would stretch out stuff in the morning. Like this time is a great time to just do kind of outlining or do some kind of notes. I'd take notes. 
-hmm. and then do the heavy duty writing later in the afternoon or shift it up. But I learned to shift up, which was a change for me. Mm -hmm. So learn that about yourself. And even if it's a half hour, it's yeah, a half hour. True. I think that's really important. The other part is um, to respect it. Don't blow it off and say, hey, maybe I might write a novel or, oh, I'm going to get to it tomorrow. Respect your writing time. Respect mm -hmm. your, your own creative self. That's hard. And that's sometimes hard to do. That's true. If you're working, you have family or whatever, it's hard to do that. But I, I also learned that. That was important for me. Um, and I think the other part is to become educate, you know, become knowledgeable about the publishing business. There's mm -hmm. the creative business and then there's the publishing business. Mm -hmm. And I always call this one creativity, creativity meets commerce. Wow. Um, so that there's that part of it. There's the creative part and then there's the whole production business part. And John, you've worked at the end note of that in a way. Mm -hmm. And I have too, but I've also worked now in the production part. So understand all that. We are in the, um, I was thinking about this the other day. Number is publishing or writing is a really old business. Yeah. 3,000 years old. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's gone through all these changes. You know, when you think about it, we had the codex running on clay tablets. Mm -hmm. We had the Gutenberg press. Then we had the steam offset press. We had steam press. We had all these different presses. Now we have digital press. We mm -hmm. have ebooks. We have audiobooks. We have hardcover, we have mass market, we have trade paperback, we have all these places where content story goes. And I think that um, it's just important to know that and to know that it takes time. There's this image, uh, I think there's, I feel the pressure as an editor. Oh, I've turned my manuscript in, you've edited it and it's gonna be out in three weeks. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. <laughs> That's, you know, if you're self-publishing and indie publishing, maybe yes, mm -hmm. but we all have um, specifications, we have guidelines, we have formats, we have things that we have to follow. And that's become, that's, I would say, way more complicated than it was five years ago. Yeah, um, getting into that particular point, I think, at least from the perspective of libraries and bookstores, a lot of indie published authors are almost um, over caffeinated, I guess is a word I would use. Their book is out and they can't understand why bookstores don't have it and why libraries aren't stocked yet. And I'm thinking, well, I'm checking Ingram's and they don't even have it loaded yet. So you have to work with what's there. Right, so there's that whole process of which is the commerce process mm -hmm. is, is constantly going through what I call um, change. It's, it's, it's always being tweaked. Mm -hmm. um, the software programs are always being tweaked. So we have all these um, sub-issues, sub-things to, to think about if we publish. Mm -hmm. And it takes time. And now, of course, with COVID, so many printers were not open yeah. for a while. Uh, and so many have been bought out. So we have the whole, that's a whole nother discussion of how printing works. But all that has changed a lot. And so I feel that patience is one thing I would say to an author, is have patience. Mm -hmm. And also that's the other part is knowing the publishing business. Mm -hmm. If you knew the publishing business, the question to you, John, would be moot because they would know it's gonna take time. Mm -hmm. 
And there's one company I want to suggest for people to just look at their is to get an account with Ingram Spark if you're going to self-publish. Mm-hmm. Why did even if I was a published author, I might get an account just to read all the information they have on publishing. Mm. I was trying to figure out who has the most updated information that I could offer for a reader to read about. They talk about marketing, they talk about printing, they talk about how things work in publishing, and they have little um, almost classes that you can take and down, you know, look at and read through, and they provide information. And if you publish with Ingram Spark, you're on the Ingram database. Mm-hmm. So that helps like someone for you to find it. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of, of um, authors don't understand that libraries and bookstores have to work with vendors. We can't just buy willy-nilly from every author that has right. their press out there. And then Amazon's a whole nother story of all that. Yeah. So uh, but that's but Ingram Spark has some information. And I think that's what I would say to people is become informed and realize that it takes time. It just mm-hmm. takes time. And I think it's okay to take time. Yeah. Uh, I went to, uh, there was a, a class about um, re, you know, revising your work. And this writer said something to me that I've never forgotten. She said to me, if you want to revise your work, and this is just some, another hint, is, is print it off in a completely different font than what you wrote it in. Yeah. And you'll see it, it makes a different sense. So I thought, again, that's a patience thing. Take the patience to do the work, to think about mm-hmm. through the process. So that's a kind of a side note there. Um, I think it's also really good to have build a network of, of writers and publishing people, mm-hmm. librarians, booksellers. Um, I, you know, the world is opening up again. We have events now. Mm-hmm. So I always would go listen to a writer that I liked because I like to hear what they had to say about writing. It's always kind of good to hear. You never know what you're going to learn there. That's always good. Um, And then the other part is I think it's really important to celebrate the steps that you take. Mm -hmm. So if you you finish the first 50 pages, you know, stop and say, I got the first 50 done. Mm -hmm. You know, every time you make a step, I finished this book. Okay, now I have to revise it. But celebrate, I finished it, the first draft. Mm -hmm. And if you send it out to someone, hey, I sent it out. Yeah. The other part is some some agents and some editors and some publishers send a rejection letter and the rejection letter has information mm-hmm. about the writing or the story. Mm-hmm. And my advice is to read it once and put it away and read it a week later. It's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, took a class on publishing that the University of Washington offered because I want, thought I wanted to hear how this publisher thought about publishing and I'm always willing to learn and learn more. And we had to do a project and he wrote all over it in red ink and I remember sitting in class and I thought, oh my God, you know, it was like a rejection letter to me. Well, I looked at it, I looked at some of it, some was good, some was not so good, or, you know, good comments. Then I came home, I put it away for two days and I opened it up and, you know, oh, hey, I did three quarters of this or seven eighths of it was perfect. There was the rest of it was just a few little notes here and there, Mm -hmm. but it was done in red ink or something. I was just like, oh, you know, I felt rejection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's really important is to learn. And just like you said, 
if I reject a book, it may not work for me, but it could work for someone else. Mm-hmm. It may not work for our press, but it could work for another place. That's fine. That's great. Mm-hmm. Persistence, I think, is a valuable tool in a writer's toolkit. Um, I think you mentioned something, and I'll reinforce it, because mm-hmm. sometimes it gets lost, especially nowadays in the world of publishing and writing, with mm-hmm. indie publishing, digital publishing, e-publishing, Um, a lot of writers are leaping into that because it's opened new pathways to them that may have been closed through traditional publishing. But as you mentioned, that's both the writing part and the business part. And if you were not set up to handle the business end in digital publishing or indie publishing, you're going to be in for a lot of um, shocks and a lot of disappointments because you have to have that skill set too it's not just writing a book when you indie publish it's how do you market how do you distribute it how do you um format it all those technical issues right the the uh, production issues the other part i want to say is the authors guild sometimes has very good information about contracts Mm -hmm. some writers organizations have good information about contracts if i was doing indie publishing i would make sure that i could talk with someone about contracts that I sign hmm. and it, particularly if I'm working with an or another business that is going to help me do I understand what they really do yeah. and do they have uh, do you have a schedule do you have a you know do you have um, um, some kind of information about how they operate mm-hmm. as a business it's really important to do that and sometimes it's good to talk, if you can, talk to other writers who have worked with them. Yeah, that's... You know, that's that's really important. Um, because this whole self-publishing, indie publishing world is really gone through so many changes. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to know who's doing what. Yeah, and there have been authors who have lost money, lost their right. rights, lost their works because they didn't do due diligence or the companies were right. not credible. Which, would, which, would, which often happened in genre fiction. Mm-hmm. as to who owned the pseudonym of a writer yeah years ago uh and readers were the ones who brought that to my attention i can still remember um you know readers coming in saying so and so i wonder if they're still writing their books because they read their pseudonym and i had never even thought about that mm-hmm. and they had hired someone else to write the books under the pseudonym so there's all these issues that go on about who owns the content and so it's really important to read the man read know what you're signing up for and what it means that's really it's really important i i think it's in a number of organ places cities have lawyers that work in the arts for a reasonable price to mm-hmm. go in and get some advice and i always recommend that i i have always had an attorney too for mm-hmm. years I, I just have a, an attorney that i know who works in copyright law yeah, it, there's a lot to take in as a writer. I guess the other thing I would add to all of the really insightful advice that you've given to aspiring and established writers is what I would ask writers to think about is why do they want to write? Is it because they want to make lots of money, because they want to be in the bestseller list, they want to tell this particular story, or is it because they have to write? That's just part of who they are as a creative person. Yeah, and and so again, g- going back to the, um, you know, when as a when I work with public as a publisher, and we sign a contract or we're going to go to contract, one of the things I try to do is is talk to the writer at some point about what are their goals, mm-hmm. and is it doable for what we do, mm-hmm. 
And in self-publishing, when I've worked with self-publishers, it's that's the number one question. What's your goal here? How do you think this is going to work? And and how what kind of work you want to do? You know, like you've, you've said, there's the business side of it, there's the creative side of it. And who's going to do that for you? Are you doing it yourself? Mm -hmm. And how to do that? Yeah, that's that's true. Um, now I know that we want to take a little bit of time before we run out of time because you have some really fascinating and intriguing books on your schedule. Can you give us any hints about what might be in store for readers from- Well, one of the, one of the I thought I'd bring about is Green, Greenwich Mean Time, which we we're sort yeah. of stepping out of our category. It's um, more of a political thriller and it's by Reed Bunzel. Uh, and he's written other books for us. So when he said, hey, can I do this thriller? I went, yeah, let's see what it is. So it's it's really a story of a photojournalist who stumbles across the side of an old airplane crash at the edge of a Himalayan glacier and she's runs across a dark deadly secret and then there's an assassin who's also trying to kill her hmm. and and then so that it's a very interesting story because we have various assassins but one of the pe persons who's a hired assassin or who does um, the work is a gifted man and he's an interesting character hmm. because there's a character who you would normally do i like this guy or not yeah but he's very very compelling um he was considered one of the most lethal men alive and he's presumed dead people hmm. presume he's dead he's been living in africa and all of a sudden he comes to essentially rescue this person so that's that's interesting um, one of the other books that I found really interesting, and I know, John, you like this too, was um, the Janet Buck book, the J.L. Buck, The Dead Cannot yeah. Hide. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a Regency spy novel with a touch of romance. And a little bit of murder, yeah. Yeah, 1812. And um, it's what's interesting to me is this character has been a spy and he's had a... Um, somewhat contentious relationship with his father who thinks that he sort of doesn't really do anything what is he really doing you find out he's really been a spy and he has a group of spies and he has a friend lady Anne, who helps him and that's that was interesting it's kind of a spy cozy mystery uh we also have a book that got a fairly a good review with uh pw called clean win which is a story of a, a guy who's a private investigator but he's really been known for being a bodybuilder in a small town. And so he gets involved in um, the murder of a young man, I mean, of a young woman, and he's pulled into this politically charged case and he also becomes the target of a local power struggle. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting um, because he's this guy who everybody else knows him as the blonde bomber, I believe. Oh. And so that's kind of interesting, just in a completely different kind of character. So that's, I like that book for that standpoint. Then we have a guy who's from Australia um, and his books are The Sand Digger Skull. And this is set in East Timor, which is in Indonesia. And an agnostic Catholic priest and an old woman believed to be a witch become key to an FBI agent and her Timorese police colleague for unraveling the truth behind this historic killing. So it's what's interesting to me is this woman is sent over as an FBI agent to help this 
um, police, the police in, in East Timor. And she ends up helping them out and she's had to learn the culture and she has to learn how to operate with the whole issue of what's justice and law in Indonesian society in this East Timor versus the culture, the small villages, how they deal with justice. So it's this, this cultural uh, crossroads of justice and law and order and murder. And it's, it's a very interesting story. And she's, it's the second in the series and it's oh. quite, it's quite good. And then um, those are just the first couple ones I thought would really be good for you for us to talk about that I thought were really helpful. Oh, and then there's one other that I liked uh, that I thought was good called Diamondback Revenge, which is a set in Wyoming. Hmm. And this is about a woman who was a police detective and she comes back home to be a private investigator. Oh. And she's known for finding people. Wow, that does sound interesting. And so she's, um, so she goes out and really interesting stories. A local shop owner's rattlesnake taxidermy display is stolen. And she wonders why. Hmm. Yeah, that is intriguing. Yeah, and then it turns out there's a, a disappearance of a family member and what's going on. Well, you do have a very um eclectic. <laughs> no, well, you're wide ranging, which is good. And one of the books that you had sent me that we talked about that has been out for a while was the case of the 61 Chevy. Yes. And um, when you were telling me about that, I'm like, no, 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 that's nothing I want to read. It sounds totally out of my wheelhouse as a reader. And um, why are you even suggesting that? And then I read it, I realized, yes, I mean, it's not something I would normally read, but that's the example of a writer who has such a compelling voice that you're like, okay, I'll go along for the ride in this case. Yeah, that's, that's a great description. You're going along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not someone who's a car person, like, mm -hmm. like the characters are in the book because they run a used car dealership. Uh, what got me is identical twin story because I have sisters who are identical twins. Wow. And I thought he, that Tom Sherry, who's this former pro basketball player, really wrote that mm -hmm. well. Um, so there's a guy, there's a character, uh, author who had such a compelling story. Mm -hmm. you, get, you fall into that story, you fall into the setting, and all of a sudden you're back in the 1960s, on the edge of the 1970s, and you, and you wonder, how's this going to work? You that, I thought it covered that whole cultural issue, the issue of the 60s really well. You did. Besides the murder uh, mystery. Interesting, John, about how you would think them. Yeah, I sometimes I, I think it's important, and you may have mentioned this or other people have, or but as a reader, when you're talking about um, looking from things from a reader's viewpoint, sometimes you need to take a chance on a book. We all get too comfortable in what we like and what we don't like, and we're unwilling to stray out of that lane, but um, maybe give a different, a something you would never read a chance, maybe read the first five chapters if you don't like it, or the first 10 pages or whatever. You don't have to read the whole thing, but you never know when you're going to discover something that you would have missed. And I think that, um, John, having discussions like this and having discussions with our readers are, you know, going to events now, maybe even online events, Zoom events, um, you take a chance with what a writer's writing and, and here and you become intrigued mm -hmm. and somebody recommends a book to you. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate that I have, um, I have a number of sisters. We all are readers. 
So we, in one, a couple of them are in book groups. So we talk about what we're reading and who's reading what, what's your book group interested in, what's happening. And you think, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna try that mm -hmm. because that seems like an interesting story. So that word of mouth of a story is, about a book is always really good to hear. And it's, some people on Facebook post their top 10 books so that they thought they were surprised mm -hmm. that they read for the year. And I always, I thought that was always interesting to see what people are reading. You're right. I think word of mouth is the one marketing tool that is the most valuable and the least able for publishers to wrap their fingers around. You can't control it. It's out there and it's, and I think I just, maybe I made this connection other people have before and I'm just slow, but maybe that's the whole um, reason why things like book talk and all these things are so connecting with readers because you're watching other readers talk about books and there's that connection there. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, that is exactly what it is, is, is people can figure out a way to connect about books and what's happening. Uh, for me, I was lucky because people would come to the bookstore that I was working in you they come to the library mm -hmm. so I could hear it and I would hear about books and I because I've been in the industry for a while you know I people will say hey Jen you should be reading this book mm -hmm. so, you know you and I talked about this the other day our list of books that we would, should read that we mm -hmm. oh I didn't know about that author um so there is that that is in a great experience and I'm really fortunate uh, and I meet I have dinner or lunch or something with people in the book trade about once every couple of weeks. So here, what are you reading? Well, you know, so I can feel like I'm hearing what people are reading. And I, the other little thing that I think is interesting is those little free libraries that people put out in front of their, their houses mm -hmm. or apartments or where they live and people put books in there and people go pick a book. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, hey, let's try it or come to a library and, and try it. Yeah. Um, so there, and I think that's the other part that I would is is uh, advice for anybody who wants to write and publish is figure out why you buy a book. When you go to a bookstore, why do you pick that book up? What is it about that book? Yeah. What is it about that author? I would hazard a guess for many people, it's the voice. When you pick right. it up, if you if you connect, right. then that's it. That's and maybe the setting. Setting too. Yeah, I some I will though have been in the past people who came into the library, the bookstore. I'm going to Paris and I want to read books in Paris or something like that, which is kind of a sub category of readers. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. And so of course I just talked about the uh, titles of these books and not the authors. So Diamondback Revenge is by Cindy Reindeers. Sandigger Skull is by Chris McMillan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Janet Buck, I did say that, J.L. Buck, Clean Wind is by Kevin Doyle, and uh, Reed Bunzel. Yeah, so I think part of it is 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 that what you said is to, to just take a look. And I also think sometimes the other thing I think people are very concerned about right now is storyline. How much violence there's in there or not, or what is the subtopic? Um, after people being isolated with COVID and everything, I think some people just do not want to read too much um, tragedy. Um, yeah, that has been on the whole kind of inspirational or um, right. comfort reads or things like that have kind of. So that's why I think cozy mysteries work for people a lot. 
mm -hmm. at some point because uh, amateur detectives, sometimes there's a private detective in our uh, private eye involved or there's the police mm -hmm. involved. But the other part is the murder usually happens off, I call it off scene and it's not a violent, you don't see it very often. You might, you don't see it always in action. Um, there's not a lot of violence in those books. And I think readers always feel, I think there's a comfort level with that. And there's an end. You have to, you really have to, as a reader, you have to know what your expectations are, what you want in a book. Um, I think you're absolutely correct, though I will say that there is a book coming in March that completely surprised me. It's called How I'll Kill You by Ren Di Stefano. I think oh, okay. she's a young adult author who's making her adult thriller suspense debut. If you told me about, well, I did have to know about the book before I read it. It was so, um, it was kind of in the Gone Girl serial killer kind of Silence of the Lambs whole category. I'm like, no, 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 that's not who I am as a reader. I don't want to read it. It's a fascinating book. I'll be interested to see how, um, I don't want to say too much because there's a lot of twists right. about it, but let's just say I learned far too much than I really need to know about crime scene cleanup and body dismemberment than I knew before I started, but the author made it work. I mean, I was completely glued to that book, so. Well, that's, the, you know, Reed Bunzel's book is like that in a way that he made it work because of here's this assassin and who shows back up and who's he going to be for? Yeah. What's going to happen? And what, and then you find out why he's become an assassin. So there's that whole backstory of that. So mm -hmm. it's, that, you know, that is something that is a little bit different than what we usually publish. Um, but I, I, you're right. There's always those stories that go out of your wheelhouse or whatever you think you're going to read. Yeah. And you, you think, okay, I'm going to read that. And you remember it. Mm -hmm. You have to give the author credit for what they do. Yeah. And I, and I'm, when I was a, I'm always grateful for that because I think it, it, it expands my uh, thought of what is story. That's a really wonderful way to end it. I can't believe an hour has flown by. I can't um, either. It was so much fun. Thank you, John. I, I so appreciate this. Um, and I appreciate your willing to talk with me about books. It's, uh, I, I miss those times of spending time with talking with people about books. Yes, hopefully we're going to get more back into that. I really want to thank Jennifer McCord for her vast um, knowledge of the book business, publishing, writing, and reading. Um, we were fortunate to have her as a guest at the Boys and Pen virtually. Um, I'd like to thank those listening in to another virtual event at the Poison Pen bookstore, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Janet. Or, yeah, I'm sorry, Jennifer. You. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and um, for all of you that listen who are writers, I'm really grateful that you're writing. We need all the writers. Um, you have writers have, uh, and reader, for me, writers have been a valuable thing for me because I have a story that I can read. Yeah, I mean, as book people, we would be at our wit's ends without books. Yeah, I, I'm sort of fumbling around with that, but I really just want to say to all the writers, uh, thank you for writing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing your stories out and, and trying it. Um, I'm grateful. Uh, there's so many memorable stories that I've spent my hours and time with, and I'm always glad when I've been able to read a good story. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for tuning in, all those listening. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them 
and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.